stumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving They just use your mind And they never give you credit It's enough to drive you Crazy and you let it Nine to five For service and devotion You would think that I Would deserve a fair promotion So welcome, Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And this is Alex Sokoloo. And uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thanks yeah. for coming on. We've got Maggie Drucker with us, who's a senior VP of Grubhub, but has had a long and varied career with many really big companies. And, um, and of course, full disclosure, we're semi-related. I'm not quite sure how. <laughs> We're cousins. We're cousins of cousins. We're cousins of cousins. That's yes. how related. Um, yeah. But Alec, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before uh, Maggie came on about creativity. And yes. Yeah. And how um, people don't necessarily think of people in the legal profession as being creative. So, yeah, yeah which, which, which is really a, a limitation, I think, of, of people's perspectives. But when you think about America, let's just start with this. America is a nation of laws, right? We're a nation that, you know, we, that, that uh, everything that happens happens because of some sense of order. And, and in there, uh, I think, are like uh, the, the notes that can be played any which way. It's like they say about jazz, there's only 12 notes. It's how you play them. So um, you know, I think that, that uh, the legal profession... Uh, much like accounting, when I was younger, I had no appreciation for how creative accounting really was. <laughs> don't, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. No, I'm sort of with you. I don't mean that in a in an underhanded way. I mean that like there's 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 this magic, there's this poetry in numbers, there's this poetry in law, uh, and how it can be used, and how you can wield that hammer if you have that knowledge. The most spectacular thing about our country is you do not have to go to law school. To, to have the law work in your favor uh, if you know the law. So the reason why people get educated, the reason why people become lawyers is because they, they, they wanna know all of the nuances of how this big, massive machine actually does work when you open up the hood. Well, that's a beautiful. Well, it's interesting. I, I actually think that it's funny. I think that what law school does more than teach you substantive law is, sorry, Bridget, I just cut you off, is to teach you how to be a good thinker. It's so it's more kind of process oriented, I think, than it is substantive. Um, so I, and I view myself more as because I'm an in-house lawyer and I have been most of my career as really a facilitator of the business as opposed to kind of an enforcer yeah. or someone who throws up roadblocks. Oh, well, that's a really good way of putting it, too. I like that it's because we what we like to talk about is people's process. And of course, you know, due mm-hmm. process is <laughs> a thing. But, right. but I think- what are you going to say, Sock? No, and and that's and you're 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 you know speaking music to my ears when you talk about process and and you talk about thinking, and mm-hmm. and the philosophy. So uh, I I think that hopefully this conversation as we're we're in the cruelest month, you know, we're in April, uh, but uh, it's, you know for most people it's the spring and it's getting warmer, 
there's a lot of hope, uh, you know, in, in our current uh, state. Uh, and that means more opportunities. And that means more legal conversations that have to be had uh, as people want their opportunities of, of what it is they're, they're trying to do and how to do it. That's true. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have a conversation with a, a career lawyer and, and more importantly, uh, you know, somebody who I, I actually wouldn't say uh, should be defined as in, with bad lawyer jokes, right? It's like this is. This is <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, like this, you know, Maggie, like you're, you're, you know, you, you, you help people tell their stories. You help people, uh, you know, uh, become what they want to become, and that's uh, and, on a and very, but on a very large scale. So that's when I say people, very, I mean corporations, because as the Supreme Court now yeah. says, corporations yeah. are people. Corporations are so. people. That's right. And, <laughs> and and I think it's funny. I actually think that's in the end why I ended up gravitating toward in-house because I think it is a hybrid a little bit. It's it's you have to play a business role as well, and you have to assess risk and balance risk. And, and not be, as I said, the enforcer or not be incredibly rigid in your application of the law, but find a way, and to your point about creati creativity, mm -hmm. find a way to get to the end result, whether that's through a transaction or settling a litigation or, or whatever it might be. So I think, I mean, again, my career has been almost exclusively um, in-house, right. which is pretty unusual. I think most people do the law firm route, at least for a time. I did it very briefly. Well, isn't it where you met Bob? We were working for like a federal judge or something? Where Yes. So, and that is, it's funny. Mario Cuomo always says that his favorite job was being a law clerk. And it was, it really was an incredible experience because you really get to play judge. And I was really lucky because my judge was brand new on the bench. So he sort of didn't know what he was doing. We kind of learned together, which was really great. So I, yes, I was a law clerk for a judge and Bob was a federal prosecutor and he had a case before my judge. Oh, That's how oh, we wow. met. Yeah. Cute meet. meet. I'll see you in quarters. It was very cute. And also, <laughs> I mean, because I got to kind of see him in action, which was really appealing. You get your joie vie. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And, uh, and luckily, it was right at the end of my clerkship that we met. So it was the timing was perfect in terms of us being able to have a relationship. But yeah, he... As he always says, he he lost the case but won the girl. Oh, yeah, he, well, then, then he then he won on appeal. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, that, and, that, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Bridge. No, I was just going to say I, I, that kind of brings me to the idea of have you seen you know in your blah 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 years in the law the kind of the attitude toward women in the law change or are there still many many hurdles to to jump? Oh my God! I mean, it's it, the 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 progress has been amazing. I think it's been incredible. Um, I mean, listen, women have been kind of half of law school classes for so long, but when you get kind of deeper and or more senior into um, levels at law firms and elsewhere, you you used to see very few because so many people left the workforce to just stay home. Yeah. Now there's just so much more, so many more accommodations, and I did that. I actually did that kind of motherhood thing along the way. I worked part-time. I was at the New York Times for about seven years working three days a week. Mm. Then I was at Martha Stewart working three days a week. I mean, I hate to say like this, I hate when people start things with, I'm so, for I was so fortunate, but in fact, I was lucky to be able to do that. And now that I'm in a position of being able to do it for others, I, I encourage it. I have somebody who's part-time on my team. And I think there's just a lot more acceptance of that. And I think law firms just have had to make accommodations because there's so many women, you know, so many talented women in, in law school. So, but are, so here's a question. I mean, I know, I know that uh, for a lot of lawyers, they, they get paid by the hour. And so they want to have billable hours. Yes. Um, but, but 
that speaks to this other thing of why why is there a five day work week or why is it that 40 hours is like what is expected although as jeffrey katzenberg uh, famously said in in hollywood if you don't come in on saturday don't come in on sunday and <laughs> so you know like that's you know why why is it that 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 is how we value work when really are you asking for an actual answer I, yeah it's a little bit of a rhetorical question but yeah yeah i think it's sort of i mean in a way it's kind of the, you could turn the question on its head it's kind of like there's not a four-hour work week there's like a 24 7 work week in a way and i think the pandemic has demonstrated that because i think there i mean i like the flexibility like i like being able to work out in the middle of the day and take a shower and then like do something at seven o'clock at night which i think the the working from home thing has permitted but i think it's i think that the work week is just endless now right i mean you're always on call so I think that's what we have to kind of address. In, in right, and and I and I kind of deflected away from the conversation about women in law, though. And 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 so in your career, let's let's kind of dig into that. In your career, have you had challenges? Have you had moments where you've said, "Wow, I've heard this is going to happen, and it's happening." And how do I it's fight glass, through that? Like glass ceiling moments, or you know? Well, yes. In that, I mean, because what happened to me was I did the part-time thing for a long time and I did it so long that my head was just banging up against the ceiling. Like I was, you know, I had some crazy title at Martha Stewart. It was like senior deputy general counsel. It was like, <laughs> there, there was so much redundancy in it. And it got to the point where I, I almost had to take the next step at that point because I was getting so senior and I couldn't, I had to have that next title, but couldn't really do it while I was working three days a week. Yeah. So um, I just kind of took the leap. My kids at that point were kind of in their mid teens. So I'd sort of gotten through the, the young years. Right. And, you know, I always like to say, like, if you have a good husband and, you know, you can really make it happen. Like I sort of got lucky in that department. Like Bob definitely, you know, takes the laboring or at home and, and makes a really big difference in that way. Right. Um, and also vis-a-vis -vis my kids, like my kids were always really encouraging of me to take the next step because they're, they were really proud and they felt, you know, really invested in what I was doing next. So I, I did the general counsel. I took a leap to go from um, Martha Stewart part-time to being the general counsel of Seamless which I did about nine years ago. Wow. Um, and 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 it was because I couldn't maintain the part-time situation without, you know, and not advance to the right, next level. Right, right, right. I think we're probably going to take a little break um, and then we're going to come back. We're talking with Maggie Drucker, who is the Senior Vice President of Grubhub and has had a long road through many corporate uh, entities that are superstars. So we're talking with Maggie. It's uh, Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we'll be right back. Serving Eastern Long Island and Coastal Connecticut, this is listener-supported 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in Southampton, New York.
Uh, we're back. Sunday's on the East End. Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And uh, you're listening to us on WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIWFM.org. And this is actually our last show. Our last show at WLIW. Our last show at WLIW. So we are, we are going a little bit farther down the road. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can certainly follow us online at Sundays on the East End on Facebook and see where we're going to be next. And we are speaking with Maggie Drucker. Uh, we were just talking about you, the work you had done um, with Martha Stewart, but I kind of want to get into more into more detail before we move on to Seamless and Grubhub, which is also yeah. just fascinating to me. The whole idea that like this didn't happen earlier. I mean, Seamless and Grubhub, I just, I mean, I know I'm going off here, but to me, yeah. like, it's like Federal Express. Like, well, there was a time in our lives, us all being about the same age, the idea of a package arriving overnight somewhere was like impossible. Yeah. And the idea of being able to order food from your favorite restaurant and have it delivered to you within like 20 minutes or whatever, well, on a good day, yeah. it was it was insane, you know, that you could order food from like, you know, some fancy restaurant and have it delivered. But first, let's talk about Martha, who is, of course, an East Hampton icon. And you worked for the company for seven years, right? I did. I did. What was it like? I had such a great experience there. I remember, again, you know, as I was saying about hitting the glass ceiling, I would poke around periodically and interview for jobs. And I, I would always come away from the interview feeling so validated that I was staying in my role because the work was so varied. There was television, there was merchandising, there was um, magazine publishing. So the con and the content obviously was so rich. And I learned a tremendous amount. And just watching her in action, like even on TV, she she would do this thing before filming where she would take questions from the audience. And, you know, like she'll take like a gardening question or whatever it might be. And she knew the answer to everything. She's so authentic. She really is the original, right? I mean, and, and she authentically knew everything, didn't rely on others. Obviously her imprint, her hand was on everything. Yeah. Um, and I really admire that. She, you know, super smart, really funny, which I think people have learned more recently. Mm -hmm. But in the old days, we would see it in action, like cutting and funny in a way that was, you know, really fun for employees. Um, yeah, I had, I remember once I had, a broken foot and I was on one of those um, scooters and I and the office was magnificent and huge. So I would sort of scoot around the office and I had a meeting with her. And at the end of the meeting, she was like, she was clearly done with me. And she was like, you know what, scoot on out of here. She was, <laughs> <laughs> she was you know, way, and, way, and, way back in the Maxwell's Plum days, she was, um, she was a hostess way, way back. She was? Yeah, yeah, she and my dad went way back. Way back, and I could wait. Was that sort of before she was a Barnard, or while she was a Barnard? I don't know. I just know that she worked, and when her first book came out in like eighty one or eighty two, my dad was like so proud of her. He was like giving the book out to everybody and saying, you know. And she always, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if this is telling tales out of school, but I have a feeling Martha would definitely agree with me. I always had a feeling like she had a little crush on my dad. And she was always asking. Really? Yeah, yeah. Whenever I saw her, she'd always say, how's Warner? You know, it was really cute. That's really and, cute. Yeah. I always. actually got, and I got the job in a really funny way because I went to law school with a guy named John Cutie, who was a good friend of mine. And he was married to her daughter very briefly. Mm -hmm. They got divorced and, you know, shortly after getting married, I think. And then, um, and and he she hired him as the general counsel, notwithstanding. I mean, they maintained a really good relationship, not notwithstanding the divorce. So that's how I 
got it. He said, come on over. So. All right. So, so I have a couple of questions though. Like, like, you know, when you went to work, she had already had, had was growing her empire and, and it's a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, from from a lawyer point of view, from an in-house legal point of view, was there a sense that you had to protect the brand or protect her differently? Because that's she's a person, but her name is become it's like Walt Disney. It's like she's become some. And she's synonymous with the brand. Yeah. Right. No, it's interesting that that came up in a lot of contexts. I mean, the main one it came up in is just in any licensing arrangement. You know, she had a big deal with Kmart, with Macy's. We were always super careful to, you know, give her all the approval rights that she needed because, again, right. as I said, she was involved in everything. And, and as the lawyers, we had to make sure she had that ability to come in and say no. And 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 that's why the brand, you know has such a even now is so is synonymous with like high quality and beauty and right and 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 then another question is like you go to work there and this is kind of a personal question like did you have to pick up your game that's what like, I'm did you oh my god alex 100 <laughs> percent i so did and you know what in the end it was good for me like i and it's and it's funny because it's really the polar opposite in a lot of ways of seamless where we're all about ordering in right 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 like, there do it yourselfers Right. You have to bring your lunch and you have to bring a gorgeous lunch in like a beautiful Tupperware and everybody and everybody's like making their own beautiful things. Yes, I totally had to up my game, but you know what? That's good. So I sort of like learned to cook a little bit and I, you know, I did up my game. You did yeah. up your game. But yeah, I had to. And, you know, because it's like a bunch of just like really talented, I mean, mostly women um, who are, you know, at the top of their respective, be it in, you know, the craft world or the cooking world or whatever. And, you know, she had on site all the test kitchens. So we would actually be able to go and, you know, first of all, taste stuff from the test kitchen, which is amazing, but also watch all the cooks in action. So I, I learned so much. I mean, that is was, literally like being with a bunch of crafty women is like my nightmare. I cannot wrap a present. I mean, oh my it, God, you're so funny, like but you would know there. Yeah, they, they absolutely, it's known in the house. Like ask anybody in my family, what can Bridget not do? It's like, she can't gift wrap and she can't open a box without breaking it. So right. but what about cooking? Do you, do, are you like, can you cook? I, I cook, but I don't clean hate clean. Oh, okay. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I have another question and I, and this may be a little bit more sensitive, but when she got into her own legal issues and yes. uh, how was that as an in-house lawyer? Like how were you there during that period? Well, thank God I was not. So okay. I actually joined the company. I mean, think back, like that was many, many years ago at this point, that's probably 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. 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 So I joined the company shortly after her legal troubles. And in a way, like to your point about it being an empire, it was, I mean, her brand was always great, but it was like being in a startup because there was all this rebuild. Like she did the apprentice and she was signing new licensing agreements and stuff. So it really had a very entrepreneurial feel at that yeah. point. Yeah. It was really cool, even though it was a bigger company. I mean, it was a public company also. Right. Yeah. Um, That's so great. it and, had those issues. Um, was that your first experience with a, with a public company? with Martha Stewart or well, Time? No, well, the Times the Times was also a public company, but at the Times, I was actually really strictly doing IP work. So I, I didn't touch the public company stuff. It's a good question. I it, it was the first time that I had to kind of learn SEC stuff in part because we were a really small department. We all had to roll up our sleeves and, and kind of jump into everything. But that really positioned me well, because later when after I joined Seamless and then 
it merged with Grubhub, we did go public. So that was a helpful experience for me. Well, before- right. And it's a natural segue. We're kind of going backwards, but like uh, the New York Times is such an institution. Yes. You know, the uh, the gray lady. Um, and uh, I I will say it's on my bucket list to 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 work for or with them at some point. I have not, but like I, I so value what they represent uh, and, and the, the product they put out on a daily basis and how they uh, made that shift to, to the digital world while still publishing a paper. Um, when you were there- I was lucky enough to, to write for the Times for several years and it really- Yeah, it really was amazing. I wrote for the Long Island Weekly, which no longer exists, but uh, Stuart Campbell, uh, Stuart Campbell was my um, editor and then Dean Toda. And they were both just amazing, and it's incredible the the um, the amount of work that goes into one article with the fact checking and the I mean it was just it, it was amazing it was right so, really great and, and and Maggie so you, and you were working on IP so tell me what 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 does IP mean when you're the New York Times well there's also I mean a lot of it is licensing related right so mm-hmm. it's I mean at the time funnily enough it was before really NYTimes.com became as big a thing as it is now. They were doing, we had a huge deal, for example, to digitize the entire paper so that you could go back into the 1800s and like look at a front page. Wow. So that that was a pretty transformative deal that I worked on. Now that's obviously less significant now that the whole world has migrated to digital, but the time is a big deal. And I also, for example, I mean, to your point about the incredible high quality, I worked really closely with the newsroom on um, kind of ethic standards for the the journalists, wow, that's which cool. are really, really, um, you know, they're really high, like, again, like, you know, your political involvement and what you can do charitably and all that kind of stuff. I mean, and it, it really, it's it's very cool to be part of an institution like that where quality is is um, really paramount. So when, right. when and, you, sorry, go ahead, Bruce. And, uh, sorry, go yeah, ahead, throw. Go ahead. No, I was going to say from a legal perspective, like, for example, one of the things, like the Times has a policy of not settling defamation suits, which from a, from a lawyer perspective is really a unique perspective because as a lawyer, as an in-house lawyer, you always want to settle because half the time it's more expensive to litigate than, than it is to um, just pay the person to go away. But again, it's, re- it's so principled that they just on principle won't do that, notwithstanding how much it might cost. So it's 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 very cool to be part of that. Right, and, and I, I was gonna say, you know, I, I, I'm an old friend uh, that is a chief counsel at, at Sony Pictures. And um, I've, I've had conversations with her uh, where, you know, when movies get made, you know, the writer slash writer director, sometimes she has to go and, and, and tell them, uh, you know, we need to vet this stuff or we need to, or, you know, is this right? Or And she would get into these huge fights and, and her philosophy was always, I'm on your side. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep you from having more trouble. <laughs> Did you have that kind of dynamic with some of the people at the Times? Yeah, although, I mean, th- that dynamic exists. It wasn't really my jurisdiction. In other words, there were other lawyers who worked with the journalists on things like potential, you know, libel reads, essentially. I did do libel reads earlier in my career when I was at Simon & Schuster. And, and that I, I did have that experience of just saying to the author, like, we're all on the same team. Um, but yeah, that's definitely, it's definitely an issue. But I think that it, at the times, the journalists really do respect the lawyers. Um, one of the lawyers, actually, Adam Liptak, his name is, he was an early um, libel lawyer for the Times, and he's now the Supreme Court reporter. So there's there's a very symbiotic relationship between the newsroom and, and the legal. That's really cool. Right. And I think what you were saying, as far as, um, just to back up a little bit, as far as the ethics for the journalists, that they... Um, 
it, that what they did in their private life would uh, matter. Like, the, yes. for example, in terms of like uh, being a Rotarian or something like that, you can't, I don't say you can't, but it, it is, it, it can affect your judgment to be part of any kind of community, um, community-based, uh, you know, or charitable uh, organization. So, well, but don't you just have to have disclosure then? Yes. I mean, I think, Alec, you're, you're, that's a good point. Like, in some cases, it's about, it really is not about the actual conflict as much as a perceived conflict, right? right? Yeah. That's why disclosure always, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? So disclosure <laughs> is always good. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, let's move forward and talk about your seamless uh, your seamless segue to seamless from Martha Stewart. So talk about that and just talk about seamless in general, because this is, this is something that, like I said, is just something that was a, a, a dream when I was in high school or something. I was like, yeah. Boy, I really would love a burger from that place in the village, but I won't be able to get it because I can't go down there. And now a phone call or, or on, on the computers, on the interwebs, people can just, right you know, get stuff. So tell me a little bit about the growth of that company. I mean, how did, how did it even, how did they get the word out? How did they grow? Yeah, it's interesting. It actually seems to have been around since 99, which is remarkable. People are really surprised. And funnily enough, it started as a, at, by, by a bunch of, it was started by a bunch of lawyers. Really? Sitting around late lawyers at night. Lawyers got to eat too. <laughs> lawyers got to eat, not just that. <laughs> they were sitting around late at night at a law firm, working late and wanting to order in. And everybody wanted to order from a different place. But the receipt thing was kind of a nightmare because they had to charge it back to the client and everybody wanted something different. And they thought, what if there were a platform where you could order and you could get at the end of the month one invoice that would charge it back to each client respectively and you could you could again order through a platform. So it started as a B2B arrangement and then Grubhub came later came in 2004. Grubhub started as a as a consumer brand. Um, and then eventually over time Seamless migrated to to service consumers and now obviously that's by far the biggest part of the business. Corporate is still important but not as meaningful as consumer. Um, what and really what it is bridge more than kind of just it really connects restaurants and diners so it we view ourselves as a marketing platform right. so if there's some weird kind of you know really small indian place on you know 49th street that no one walks by and no one knows about we actually are going to get that awareness out to the consumer by putting it on our platform um and um and you know I, right. I think that, you know, we really, we view ourselves now, we have more of a relationship with big chains, but for many, many years, it was really about getting the word out to people about small businesses, small. Right. And, but, you know, and, and, and there's a philosophical conversation that I, I read about. I, I'm not in that game, so I don't know it uh, firsthand, which is that the restaurants have to give a cut of their yes. sales. And, and so, especially in the pandemic, it's been a lifeline. Uh, but it's also been, it's, they're in a different business now. They're not yeah. in the on-site experience business. They're in the supply chain business. Well, yeah. I want to get to that. So yeah, for sure. How it's, how it's morphed in during the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the, I mean, what it's, I mean, what's happened in the pandemic to your point is obviously restaurants have, have suffered. I mean, we've really, um, tried to help SMBs in particular. We put hundreds of million of dollars into, you know, funding coupons. So that restaurant and, and giving restaurants money towards marketing so that they can actually accelerate their takeout because obviously a lot of dine-in places now, you know, during the pandemic can only do takeout. So 
you know, we view ourselves as really a facilitator of transactions for these restaurants. Right. And, and in many cases, we also don't, I mean, again, to your point, Alec, about, about getting a cut. I mean, we do spend hundreds of millions of dollars here on marketing. Like we are the marketing arm for these restaurants. Sure. So we're actually driving diners to these restaurants that wouldn't otherwise go. And, and in many cases, and, and most cases, I would argue, the orders really are incremental to them. Yeah, so, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying it non-judgmentally. I just- No, I, no, I know, I know. And, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing because um, anytime, you know, I'll hear about or read about a, a business and they're like, you know what business they're really in? And it's <laughs> not really the business they think they're in. And I do see restaurants, especially in cities like New York, uh, city, um, they're in the supply ch uh, chain business. They're in the like we are going to make it, get it out, get it to you. Uh, not the you're going to come in and have Bridget. You know, your dad was in the yeah. restaurant business and, and said it's like all the five senses or six senses are being used and everything. And, um, and it's it's a different game now. Six senses. Um, I like that. Like I I I can kind of intuit what you're going to order. That's the sixth sense. <laughs> right, right. What is this? I was thinking no, it's what the five this? senses. All no, well, no. Well, there's yeah. actually something like 33 senses uh, when you talk about like being able to have your time and place uh, in, in in space. Uh, we, we just only count the, the first five. Okay, we'll get to that. Maybe that that's for the next show. <laughs> oh, but anyway, so it, but but Grubhub has become this national. Like, how many meals a day? Six hundred thousand, roughly six hundred thousand orders a day. Um, that's a lot or, of food. You know, what we call DAGs, daily average grubs. This is about six hundred thousand, and we have about three hundred thousand restaurants on the platform. That's wow. Amazing. And and from and from your uh, what what service are you providing for them mostly? Where, where do you spend most of your time and energy? Well, that's that's the point, and that's where I was kind of distinguishing a little bit what Bridget said is again we are a marketing platform that connects diners and restaurants. We are. I mean, we also do provide delivery for a lot of restaurants. That's not exclusively what we do. And we only started doing that actually around 2015. Before that, we only had self-delivering restaurants on the platform. So they had their own delivery drivers. Okay. We now also supply delivery drivers to restaurants that can't otherwise do that. And, um, and, and our, that may be, this may be an overreach, but like, and does okay. section 230 of the CDA come into like your game? Like, is it, are what you, are you kind talking of- about? I don't even know what you're talking about. What's that? I'm I don't talking know. about the Communications DC Act and the basic thing that it's, it's, it's happening right now with Facebook and everything, but, oh. but uh, in other places, it's, it's, it's that law that says that websites are not culpable for third-party posts. Yeah. Know? It's, it doesn't come into, I mean, we are not a con, I mean, in that traditional sense, we're not a content site the way like the Times is or whatever. We don't create content. We have obviously restaurant listings on our site and we have some blog posts that might implicate CDA, but don't. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not a thing for us. Um, and, 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 and I'm not sure where delivery drivers would come into no, play. Well, well they're, 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 I guess, under the restaurant uh, side of the conversation, right? I mean, they're... Right, but they're not like posting, for example. I mean, right. they, we and we do, like our delivery drivers have their own, you know, they, they have to sign onto an app that basically tells them when they have an order and tells them where to go and that kind of thing. But again, there's no content really exchanged. That's so amazing, so, though. It's still such a huge, huge behemoth monster of a business. It's so amazing. It's, it's huge. Yeah. It's, cra it's crazy. And now, and of course, you know, a lot, you know, Seamless was the original and Grubhub was very early on. But since then, obviously, Uber has moved into the space and DoorDash, yeah. et cetera. So, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a big thing. It's a big thing. So what... And, I mean, yeah, so what does a, a, a day look like to you 
you know, being the, the senior vice president and legal counsel of this huge national business that brings diners and restaurants together. I mean, what 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 kind of things cross your desk on a daily basis? I mean, you know, it's I mean, the truth is it's it's so varied, Bridge, and it's and, and a lot of it, I mean, it and it depends on the moment in time. Like for example, like we obviously have we have to file a proxy because we're a public company and that's coming up. So and we have an annual meeting coming up. So some of my focus is on that. And we also have now, for example, like a pretty robust and growing government relations team that works really closely with legal on things like lobbying, because there's tons of legislation that implicates us at the moment. Um, You know, everything from sort of privacy initiatives and fee caps and a variety of things. As we get bigger, the the stuff gets thornier. Um, We have a ton of litigation and our litigation has grown tremendously as we've grown as a company, we've become more of a target. I mean, we have like patent trolls and we have, um, you know, marketing litigation and we have governmental inquiries, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. So that could be on a given day. And then, you know, of course there also is, you know, we do our, my team does M and a we've done over the years, many acquisitions. We've bought up a lot of companies and now we actually um, in May, we signed a deal to be acquired by a European company, wow. which is obviously a huge transformative thing. And the deal has not closed yet. Does that um, I can like order chicken from uh, Chez Lamy Louis and have it delivered to me in Mauritius? Oh my God, wouldn't that be nice? And in <laughs> fact, it's funny because the, so the company is, they're now known as Jet. They're a combination of Just Eat and Takeaway. Just Eat was based in the UK and Takeaway in, in the Netherlands, but they, they're like the European Grubhub essentially. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's a big deal in Europe too. I mean, and elsewhere, you know, throughout the world, really. We're going to take, we're going to take another break, but first I want to ask you, do you feel like, I mean, you talked about when you, you had to up your game when you went to Martha Stewart, do you feel like yeah. you're constantly growing and learning still? I do. And, and in fact, yes, I do. I, I, and, and when we were talking, we never got to really transition from Martha Stewart to Seamless, but when I started at Seamless, I remember thinking like the first 18 months, every day I was doing something that I'd never done before, mm. which is like exhilarating and also so scary and also t- utterly exhausting. Yeah. Um, now, luckily I, 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 you know, I have enough repeat behavior and repeat issues that it's, it's gotten a little bit easier, but, um, but, but to your point, the issues are always new. There's always something that I've never done before. And that's kind of why I've stayed there as long as I have, it's been almost nine years. And people say to me like, why didn't you move on to the next thing? And I say because it's just a different company every year, you know, the right. initiative, you know, et cetera. Right, right. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to take another break. Uh, you're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And our special guest, Maggie Drucker, Senior Vice President of Grubhub and East Ender. We're going to come back and talk about the East End and family stuff and all that other good stuff right after this.
Uh, we're back. Sunday's on the East End. Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And Maggie Drucker. And uh, what were we just talking about? <laughs> what, what well, we, we were talking today? about the transformative nature of Maggie's journey and career through the corporate infrastructure in an ever-changing world. Oh, you use your tongue. <laughs> well, yes. on a $20 whore. That's it. <laughs> Sorry, that's that line from Blazing Saddle. Who's a bigger whore, screenwriters or lawyers? That's what I want to know. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm going to go with screenwriters. Screenwriters, because they need the money more. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, Maggie, you're, you, you and, and Bob Feinberg, your husband, you're both lawyers. You both yes. right now during the pandemic, you're both working out of out of the house. Uh, you're you your 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 primary home, but you also have a secondary home in East Hampton. How has yeah. it been? Like, uh, you know, is it very stressful, or is it? Do you find it less stressful? You must be all. Well, I mean, listen. I, I mean, there are things I love about it, right? I mean, and again, I think everyone's gone through this this tra trajectory from the beginning of the pandemic till now. Like in the beginning. The kids were home, you know, we have two sort of adult age kids, one college kid, one graduated college. And we had really wonderful family time and it was like a once in a lifetime, right? You don't get that a lot. Um, and over time, obviously it gets a little old. I mean, I do, I do, as a lawyer, I love working from home in general. And I actually worked from home at least once a week prior to the pandemic because a lot of our stuff is documents and you need peace and quiet and you just get a lot more done at home. Um, but, you know, but now that we're all at home and my son also was living with us until recently, you know, it, you hear everything, right? I mean, I hear things that, you know, I hear Bob on the phone and sometimes I'll say like, you know what, you were totally mansplaining. You got to cut that out. <laughs> Luckily, he's super receptive. Like he's, he's like, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. But you do hear that. And Bobby, of course, I don't want him to just, Bobby. I don't want him to comment on me, but that's another story. But also um, that Bob is counsel for WNET. So you, yeah, he's the general very, counsel of WNET. Yes, yeah, both exactly. Very high powered, you know, positions. So there must be a lot of phone calls and Zooms and, you know, tons of that. And, and, you know, and our house on the East End, you've seen it, Bridget, it's small, super small. So, I mean, luckily we literally use the outdoors as another room when the weather permits, yeah. but it's, it's been a little tough. Um, you know, the competing Zooms are a little tough, but I, I would also say, imagine, like, but I would also imagine as we're pushing into the summer season, you know, the cell phone coverage and the internet coverage seems to get worse as it gets more populated out here, uh, that it must be hard when you, when you're under the pressure of, I have to be on this call, Zoom, whatever now, uh, that, that have, have you guys had that, those frustrations? Yeah, we've had challenges there. I mean, I hate to sort of like, I wouldn't really bitch about it. It's, it's all kind of dealable. Right. But, right. um, there have been some challenges there, but I think everybody, it's not just the East end. Right. I mean, I think people are super forgiving of technical challenges during this time or like barking dogs or whatever it may be. <laughs> right. Um, because we're not alone in, in, in having those challenges. Um, I mean, the one nice thing about Grubhub that has has been has made an easier transition is we our headquarters are in Chicago because that's where Grubhub was based and Seamless was based in New York. And we, of course, have offices all over the country, including California. So we had already a very kind of video friendly culture. We already had been doing Zooms. And so the transition to that was was not that hard. I mean, I feel more for I have two new team members who started during the pandemic who I've never met. That's kind of tough. Yeah, it's a lot harder. Never met them. Um, but I, I do, I do feel like my team is functioning at a really high level, even, you know, remotely. So, and it'll be interesting to see what it's going to look like as we move back. I mean, we have, um, you know, a, a, a test period going on in July with volunteers who are coming to the office in Chicago to see how that goes. 
but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever going to look the same. Right. I mean, I no. think, and everybody's said that. No, I know. And every, we've all gotten used to zoom and it's convenient and you don't have to wear pants, you know, all that well, there's that, but, 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 but on the, on the uh, cultural level, uh, you know, pantaloons aside, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's, you also have, you know, millions of square feet of commercial real estate in all the cities that was, that was built for a world that might not exist anymore. It's really frightening. I mean, it's funny. I was talking to Bob about this because I think they're all, I mean, they're also discussing going back to NET. I mean, it, it's sort of, it is true. There's a lot going to be a lot of extra space because I think as a practical matter, I don't think everyone is going to be going back five days, at least not for a long time. On the other hand, you do need a little more space to space people out, right, in this new world. So I I, I don't know, it might work. I mean, I, I know a lot of companies are talking about like A days, days and B days and that yeah, kind of Yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's yeah, it's going to be a very slow um, climb back to any kind of image of what normal would be. They're now, now they're not saying the new normal, they're saying the next normal. So yeah, it, no, yeah, no. and I wonder like the for the companies, I mean, I know a lot of the big tech companies have said and Spotify for example, they've all said, "Oh, we don't think anyone who doesn't want to ever needs to come back." I wonder if that's going to persist. Like or if or if, you know, again, some teams like I know our tech and product teams are really collaborative mm -hmm. and I think they're really missing the in-person in element. As a lawyer, I think, you know, a lot of our work is honestly a little bit solitary, so yeah. it, it fits better for us. So I think it really depends on the role. Yeah, but, and, but, and, you know, normal, the very concept of normal is a slippery slope. We're just always adapting and we're, you know, whatever works in one day is normal and then it might not be normal the next day. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think even the transition from for even for lawyers from kind of having offices, everybody used to have an office like in Martha Stewart, I had an office. Then I went to Seamless. And I remember when I interviewed, there was like a big table, literally it looked like a dining room table. And all the leaders of the company were sitting around the table. And I thought to myself, there's no way they're putting me at that table. Like I'm a lawyer. That's crazy. And sure enough, I arrived and I'm like elbow to literally elbow to elbow with people. So even that was like a big transition. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's cool. Let's go back to. So when did you know personally that you wanted to pursue law? That's a good question. I think that that I mean, and again, this was the reason for it turned out to not really have any legitimacy. But I remember taking a class in college, like a con law class. And I was like, intellectually and academically, I found it incredibly interesting and engaging. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, like, am I doing anything relating to con law? Well, once in a while, to your point, Bridge, like sometimes we talk about due process or whatever, yeah. but it, 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 it really doesn't bear any relationship to what I do. Um, but I knew that academically it was going to be really stimulating. And I also knew that with a law degree, you could do almost anything. And sure enough, I do think like I think my experience at NYU Law School was the best academic experience that I had, like even even more so than Brown, which I loved. Um, I, I think it's it's the place that really made me smarter and a better thinker. Mm -hmm. So I and, so I was and, really drawn to the academic side of it. And has your philosophy of law changed in your career? Well, have, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Finish the question. Sorry. So no, do you still have that same belief in the process or has your process like how has your journey informed you? Well, I think it's it's not dissimilar from what I said earlier, which is that I think that my particular journey has been a hybrid business law journey. And I think that's how you succeed in-house is by being, you know, as I said, a facilitator wearing a business hat thinking like a business person. And, um, but also, you know, 
I do, I do view myself as a service provider, right? Like it's, it is like a service industry and I view the business people who I work closely with as my clients. Right. So I think that, that, um, that has kind of changed my perspective that adding that kind of business element has definitely changed my perspective. Um, but I th- I do think that the thinking and the judgment, I always say like, even when I hire lawyers now, some people are gas and I'm willing to hire them. Like I hired somebody who was like an ERISA lawyer at a law firm, which has nothing to do with what, what she'd be doing for me. But if you have really good judgment um, and you have good interpersonal skills, you can succeed in house. And that's kind of what I look for. And I think that that is something that I learned in law school just to have really, you know, it, 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 it made my judgment better. So when, and that's useful for everything. So when you started at Brown and you didn't, what, what other, what other careers were you kind of tippy toeing around before you took that? None because Brit, here's my thing. And I'm like that even now, I don't think one step ahead. I was, I was never one of those people who could say like in five years, what do you want to be doing? Never. Well, that's and I all never. my father ever said to me. So what's your five-year plan? That, that was not right. And I was like, I'm six years old, you know? So oh, God, that's fun. How, how, yeah, and by by the way, it didn't work out for Chairman Mao. It didn't work out for any of us. You know? Wait, but so did he have that in his career? Like, was he Mr. Five Years, Who Mr. Knows? Two? Who knows? But he, he tried to enforce it on me. What's your five-year plan? I was like, and I was like, I'm I'm 11. I don't oh, know. I don't that's know. That's so funny. <laughs> Always. I, I, I never had that. And I don't expect people, like, I never ask people that question. I think it's horrible. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I, I was like, and you know what Brown was like. It was so not pre-professional. Like, we were like, early interview week, what's that? Like at Penn, Alec, you probably experienced, like everybody was oh, been, no, like on the I, I got to tell you something. I I used to say, you know, uh, a lot of my friends went to Wharton. I went to like Edith Wharton. Like I was so like <laughs> marching to my own beat that second semester, senior year, I didn't even know there was a place called career planning. And, uh, and, and, and when I went in there, I thought I'll tell them what I want to do and they'll help me. And I had just read about uh, Chuck Woolery making like a million dollars a year being a game show host and only working one day a week. So I went in and said, I want to be a game show host. And they <laughs> laughed and kicked me out. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I was out of step with that stuff. Yeah, but but I think that at, that at Brown, the people who did that were I were really more the exception than the rule, at least in my friend group. So I don't think we thought I had. I took some, you know, I after I graduated, I was like, okay, I wanted to travel, so I led a Putney trip, and then I went to Washington for a year. I took a little time off between college and law school, and then and then I kind of figured, all right, it's time to settle down, but. I didn't really think in those terms. I just didn't. Yeah. And yeah. my parents aren't lawyers, so it's not like I thought about being a lawyer early on. My brother is a lawyer. He's a and, and and has it affected your parenting though as you watch your was, boys kind of grow up? I was gonna ask that. Do you do you ask your kids if they have a five-year plan? Never. And in fact, it's funny, and Alec, you know this because you were nice enough to talk to my son James. Yeah. He wants to be a writer. He was a literary arts major at Brown, and he and and I'm super supportive of that, of him just following that passion. Um, you know, do I think he would be a great lawyer? Yes, but I, I, I would never push that on my kids. I don't think either of my kids will end up going to law school and, and I want them to just, you know, take their own journeys and follow yeah, and, I, and I would politely argue that, that really, it's not really writing, it's storytelling. Everybody tells a story and that one of the best lawyers I've ever read about or experienced tell stories yeah. and they use the law to tell their stories. Well, that's true. And it's funny. My father used to always say to me, and maybe it's a similar thing, Alec, he used to say, 
you have to be in sales in everything you do, essentially, no matter what, you have to be a good salesperson. If you're a good salesperson, you could succeed. Similar thing to the storytelling. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I don't think our kids will, will follow in our footsteps, which is fine. So. <laughs> well, Maggie, it's been really wonderful having you on. Believe it or not, we're we're out of time. And oh my goodness, I've loved chatting with you guys. Yeah, this is really fun. We're out of time in more ways than one. Yeah, so. yeah. Right, the valedictory show. I'm the so honored to be part we're of it. Commencing to our next lily pad somewhere. Yes, we are, and we want to give a big, huge shout out to everybody at first WPPB, which then became WLIWFM. Everyone who's helped us along the way, in particular Kyle Lynch and Delaney Hafner who have been extraordinary partners with us. And uh, please keep a lookout for us on Sundays on the East and on Facebook. And Alec, do you want to take us out? Yeah, you know, thank, thank you, Maggie, uh, for giving us some time. And, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I, 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 might, I mean, among my takeaways just in general is, is, is the passion that Maggie brings to her day-to-day -day process. Uh, probably is tied directly to the magnificent and strange and fun career she's had. Uh, that, that, so I hope that people can find that fire. And if you have that fire, keep that fire lit. Um, but, you know, seeing as this is our last uh, rodeo uh, for, for uh, LIW, uh, Bridget, thank you. Uh, thank this you. has really been a, a fun thing uh, to do. Uh, hopefully, uh, people have listened. Uh, we've given you guys a smile, and if not a smile, maybe something to chew on. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the jello's jiggling and the butter's getting hard, as Chick Hearn used to say. The game's over. So it's time to go on our merry way. So, everybody, please be well and stay well. I'm coming to the edge of the widest canyon, my companions, dear. I'm starting to question my manifest destiny, my claim to this frontier. I'm coming to the brink of a great disaster and just has to be near. The earth spins faster, whistles right past you, whispers death in your ear. Don't pretend you can't hear Don't pretend you can't I can hear you tell the rose still Dig it 
Sam! 